foreign ministers from Russia and China meeting in New York. That's after Russian President Putin's nuclear threat. Three of America's largest banks promising to take action if Beijing invades Taiwan. A U.S. commander says the American Navy is prepared for any scenario if China does decide to invade the island. A Chinese factory owner tells his story. He says he fled to Canada after repeated harassment and extortion crippled his business. The circle repeats until we are doomed to die. And why is Falun Gong painted differently in China than it is overseas? A look at Beijing's propaganda history could hold the answer. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Chenny Wu, in for Tiffany Meyer. Let's start on an update on Russia and China. Foreign ministers from the two nations met on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in New York. This after Russian President Putin issued his nuclear threat. Here's more. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi spoke with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Wednesday. He said China would maintain an objective position regarding the war in Ukraine. Both Russia and Ukraine are major trading partners with China. Lavrov responded that Russia is still willing to solve problems through dialogue. Earlier the same day, President Vladimir Putin ordered the country's first mobilization since World War II. He also issued a threat, stating he will not hesitate to use nuclear weapons to protect the country's borders. U.S. President Biden responded, A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. The chief of NATO said Putin's threat shows he'd made a big mistake by invading Ukraine. The speech of President Putin uh, demonstrates that the war is not going according to uh, President Putin's plans. Uh, he has made a, a big miscalculation. The United Nations Security Council has failed to take any substantial action against Russia. That's because the country has veto power as one of the body's permanent members, as does China. Three of the U.S.'s largest banks are promising to follow calls from Washington and pull out of China if Beijing was to attack Taiwan. Leaders from J.P. Morgan, Bank of America and Citigroup made the commitment on Wednesday at a House of Representatives hearing. Brian Moynihan, Bank of America's chief executive, said his bank will follow the government's guidance. Referring to Washington's view of China, he noted that if they change their position, we will immediately change it. Chief executives from Citibank and J.P. Morgan echoed his comments. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said he believes in free democracy everywhere and that it's up to the U.S. government to comment on the Taiwan situation. Oppenheimer is a world-leading brokerage and investment bank. Its banking analyst, Chris Kudowski, said China's geopolitical risks make banks more cautious about their investments in China. Concerns over a possible Taiwan conflict have been growing over the past two years. That's as China steps up its military presence in the region. Beijing also accuses Washington of failing to uphold the One China policy. That stance says the U.S. recognizes Beijing as the government of China and acknowledges Beijing's position that Taiwan is part of China, but does not endorse it. A U.S. Navy commander is giving new comment about Taiwan. Vice Admiral Carl Thomas, commander of the 7th Fleet, says China's military is capable of imposing a blockade around Taiwan. But he pointed out that doing so would trigger the international community to intervene. 
He made the remark in an interview with the Wall Street Journal on Tuesday. He also said the U.S. Navy is prepared for any scenario. The U.S. 7th Fleet is permanently deployed in the Indo-Pacific region. It includes more than 50 ships and submarines, plus 150 aircraft. Next, a successful former businessman forced to sell his company well below its value and later flee his home country. He says it's all because of repeated extortion from police and other authorities. Now he's sharing his story. Feng Zhengguo is the former owner of a profitable wood furniture factory in China. He says he was forced to sell his company to Chinese police at a price far below its true value. At the social level I am on, the Chinese Communist Party's number one target is to eliminate private businesses, the bottom layer of private economies. And one thing I now understand very well is why they don't just kill us all at once. They keep us alive so we work hard to get rich, so that they can harvest it after we've earned money. The circle repeats until we are doomed to die. Feng's factory was located in Qinghuangdao, a port city about 200 miles east of Beijing. He invested over $400,000 into the company and employed about 40 workers, customizing high-end solid wood furniture. I am a typical craftsman. I always dreamed of having my own carpentry factory. But the Chinese regime appears to have had other ideas for him. Citing various rules and regulations, Feng was repeatedly made to hand over large sums of money just to keep his doors open. One of those situations struck in 2016 when Feng was going through the process of establishing his factory. One of the requirements involved something called an environmental impact assessment. Fung explained that the local bureau in charge of approving applicants would use the situation to sell environmental protection equipment to businesses at four or five times normal market prices. And if a company refuses to buy from designated suppliers, the bureau won't certify it, meaning the business can't operate. Fung said he was lucky enough to pass the assessment after spending large sums of money on those purchases, but noted that many weren't so lucky, going bankrupt and getting forced to close their factories. Ever since I opened my factory in 2016, the Environmental Impact Assessment Bureau would come and extort money regularly. They sent different people with different excuses every time, saying this is not up to standard, that is not certified, they will never approve you. Their purpose is to extort money, to fine you. Feng says the issue reaches beyond the business sector. Feng's wife had been a member of an underground church. In China, churches are state-sanctioned and must follow guidelines set out by the Chinese Communist Party. Those that don't are considered underground, and members often face harassment from authorities. As for Feng's wife, the police threatened to report her unless the couple handed over a large sum of money as a bribe. They decided to pay in the end. But after so many issues with the police, Feng and his wife saw no other choice but to sell the factory. One potential buyer offered $400,000 but later withdrew the bid because someone from the police station wanted to buy it instead. Fung ended up selling his factory for less than $60,000, only around a tenth of its real value. Later they learned the man who made the purchase had represented a local police officer, and even after the business sold, police harassment continued. In early 2021, the police called Fung's wife and threatened to report her for what they described as illegally going to church. But this time, the couple had nothing left to pay them off, instead choosing to flee to Canada. China is no longer an ideal destination for investments. 
That's according to a top European Union industry group assessment. Let's zoom in. A top European industry group warned on Wednesday that companies are losing confidence in China. It said China's reputation as an investment destination was being eroded, and that a key reason for the shift is the country's, quote, inflexible and inconsistently implemented COVID-19 policy. China insists its zero-COVID-19 policy is necessary to stop virus spread and maintain its health system. To measure China's investment appeal, the European Chamber of Commerce surveyed 1,800 of its member companies. Besides COVID-19, the chamber also listed other factors they say harm China's attractiveness. Those include the lack of reform in state-owned enterprises, the numbers of European nationals that have left China, and increasing political tensions between China and the West. The report said record numbers of businesses are looking to shift their investments to other markets. For now, the chamber still seems to consider working with China as a goal. As the report suggests, China should avoid what it called erratic policy shifts and deepen cooperation with Europe. Now, we address a question from our viewers. One asked, why is Falun Gong painted differently in China than it is overseas? A short answer would be Beijing's propaganda and censorship. In the U.S. and other Western countries, support for the practice abound. Over the past two decades, thousands of Falun Gong practitioners have been imprisoned and tortured and murdered by the CCP. Forced organ harvesting is one of the most terrible crimes that I think I've ever encountered. We are on your side. Freedom House stands in solidarity today with Falun Gong practitioners and all those persecuted by the CCP. But in China, the regime's attitude towards Falun Gong is the complete opposite. The contrast traces back to the Chinese Communist Party's decades-long propaganda campaign against the practice. For those who may not know, what is Falun Gong? It's an ancient spiritual meditation system based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. The practice became very popular in China in the 90s. At the time, about one out of every 13 Chinese people were practicing it. But the regime launched a nationwide persecution against the practice in 1999. Millions have been detained and tortured since. At least 4,000 have been killed, although the real death toll could be far higher. For the Chinese regime, its struggle against Falun Gong fits into a pattern in its history. Ever since the regime took power in 1949, it has launched a massive violent crackdown on a segment of society about every 10 years. The violent movements stroke fear and consolidate the party's power and control over its people. In the 1950s, the regime cracked down on religion. Over 3 million religious believers were persecuted, some of them killed. In the 1960s, the regime persecuted cultural and intellectual elites. Intellectuals were classified as the worst enemies of the people. In the 70s, the Cultural Revolution tore apart China's traditional culture. It also took the lives of half a million people. In the 80s, the regime massacred unarmed students asking for democracy, later addressing them as mobs. And in the 90s, it was Falun Gong. But the regime's campaign against the spiritual meditation didn't work out as expected. Then-party leader Jiang Zemin vowed to wipe out the practice in three months. But two years later, Beijing's campaign was losing its steam. Many Chinese people saw Falun Gong as posing no threat and believed the regime went too hard. 
According to the U.S.-based Falun Dafa Information Center, to turn the tide against Falun Gong, the regime stepped up its propaganda game. In 2001, five people allegedly set themselves on fire in China's Tiananmen Square. Beijing claims they were Falun Gong practitioners. And under China's state-controlled media, no rebuttal could be heard from Falun Gong. Authorities were arresting and throwing people into jail nationwide for practicing their spiritual beliefs. At the time, Beijing's propaganda machine went all out. The story was broadcast on TV, radio, newspapers, billboards, comic books, posters, movies, TV series, and even elementary school textbooks. It turned many people's attitude against Falun Gong. But some were quick to point out the holes in the story. The regime said a self-immolator died from immolation. But surveillance footage showed she collapsed after being hit by a man. In addition, a Washington Post reporter went to her hometown, and people told him none ever saw her practice Falun Gong. Another clip is also sparking questions. This man's body is visibly burnt, but the plastic bottle with gasoline between his legs wasn't even scorched. Due to China's information blockade, even after 21 years, there are still many people in China who don't know the truth about the event. The Chinese Communist Party smear campaign against Falun Gong is still going on. Coming up, South Korea, a country looking for balance between two world powers. What makes the Asian country so important to the United States? We sat down with Morse Tan, former ambassador at large for global criminal justice, to find out. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. South Korea has been increasing cooperation with the United States. But how close can those ties get without angering China? And why is South Korea strategically important for the U.S. and the world? Morse Tan, former ambassador-at-large for global criminal justice, gives us an overview on how the relationship stands. Ambassador Tan, for our audience who aren't up to date with South Korea and U.S. relations, could you give us an overview? So historically, it's been a close relationship, and it was the U.S.-led efforts that defended South Korea against North Korean aggression in the Korean War. And over the years, there have been close economic, diplomatic, political, cultural ties that have grown between the U.S. and, uh, and South Korea. And so I think this uh, relatively new president in South Korea is strengthening and seeking to strengthen those ties. It's the U.S. commitment to defend South Korea that is the biggest deterrent to North Korean aggression. And so having that deterrent firmly in place is very important for peace on the peninsula. Ambassador, could you explain to us why South Korea is so important in this region and also to the U.S.? So Korea is nestled between uh, China and Japan, uh, two major uh, powers in various respects, economically certainly. Uh, China has been rising as a military power uh, as well. But Korea in its own right has 
a lot of uh, positive ties with the United States, as I was alluding to uh, before. But when you are talking about the four largest militaries in the world, you have them gathered right around there, where you have China, Russia, the US, and North Korea being the four, four largest um, militaries by number of units, right there interested in the, uh, in the Korean Peninsula. And so it does play a part. China, for example, interprets the, uh, the missile defense systems that have been installed in South Korea as aimed at China uh, when it was really to deter North Korea. But China wants to be able to freely shoot missiles. And I don't think the US is as interested in that. Uh, I think this administration is more open for further deployment of such batteries. Uh, China tried to punish South Korea through informal sanctions after they installed uh, even the limited amount that they installed. And so there are various different uh, interconnections here. So it seems like it's a balancing act for South Korea as the country is being forced to choose between the US and China. What's at stake? There's a lot at stake. Um, the, China is engaged right now in what they have called a 100-year great power struggle uh, with the United States. And so when I was working in the federal government, there was a lot of uh, efforts to counter uh, malign influence from China. On, my, uh, on one of my last days in office, the genocide and crimes against humanity determinations against the Chinese Communist Party uh, happened, which is still reverberating uh, there. Uh, but uh, South Korea historically has been a lot closer to the United States, but there have been increasing economic and other ties with China uh, as well. And so uh, a lot of North Korean refugees are, in, are more in China than anywhere else. Uh, China is the main power propping up the malignant Kim dynasty in North Korea. And so that is a major part of uh, the puzzle as well. Whereas the US has been the largest protector uh, and uh, guarantor, if you will, of South Korean security. And so there are times where uh, I think there are tensions in, in terms of South Korea's relationships and how to, uh, how to approach them. But it does seem to be um, very much in South Korea's interest to not pursue the relationship with China to the detriment of its uh, relationship with the United States. So, Ambassador, can South Korea afford to alienate China? Well, I think when China is engaged in, uh, in manifestly unjust activities and also is uh, undermining uh, various, uh, various other countries, not only in the region but around the world, I don't think that uh, Korea needs to endorse those sorts of activities. Now there are, uh, there is a um, robust economic relationship 
and I think South Korea would probably want to maintain or even grow uh, the economic side of the relationship. But I don't think that South Korea needs to cater to China to the detriment of its own security to the, with respect to resolving the North Korean um, issues, um, nor does it have to, uh, to uh, pander to China in ways that hurt the relationship with uh, the United States. I think that would be a strategic mistake if South Korea were to move in that direction. I don't think President Yoon is trying to do that. I think he's trying to do the reverse, and I think he is prioritizing the relationship with the United States. But I think there are some ways to do that while continuing on or building on the relationship with China as well, uh, economically, for example. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Chenny Wu. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow.